nation. I was reminded of this recently when I was a speaker at a conference in the South. The setting was lunch in the grand ballroom. There were over 100 people in the room. Salads sat waiting at every plate. My presentation was over. I was hungry. I waited several minutes for people to begin eating. No one did. Finally, I asked one of my hosts if there was some reason no one was eating. He was rather non-responsive, and I was starving, so I began to eat. No one else followed suit. A few minutes later, a member of the clergy came to the podium and said grace. Then, everyone picked up their fork and began to eat. What I hadn't considered was that people in the South tend to be more religious than those in the West Coast urban center where I live. Apparently, my host hadn't wanted to embarrass me by pointing out my ignorance when I asked about eating. I wish he had. Sometimes we forget that there can be cultural differences, even within our own culture. And no matter how much we think we know, we can still make mistakes. Asking the right questions. The four C's. Culturally competent care is essentially patient-centered care. Although the case studies used in this book focus on a variety of ethnic cultures, the principles of cultural competence should be applied to all patients. The key factor in achieving cultural competence is learning to ask the right questions to elicit an understanding of the patient's point of view. A number of mnemonics have been developed to help practitioners remember what questions to ask. A simple one, developed by myself and physicians Stuart Slavin and Alice Kuo, is called The Four C's of Culture. It was inspired by the eight questions proposed by Arthur Kleinman and his colleagues. The first C is for call, as in, what do you call your problem? This is to remind the clinician to ask, what do you think is wrong? It's getting at the patient's perception of the problem. This is an important question because the same symptoms may have very different meanings in different cultures and may result in barriers to compliance. For example, among the Hmong, epilepsy is referred to as the spirit catches you and you fall down. Seeing epilepsy as spirit possession, which has some positive connotations for the possessed, is very different from seeing it as a disruption of the electrical signals in the brain. This should lead to a very different doctor-patient conversation and might help explain why a Hmong patient may be less anxious than the physician to stop the seizures. For an excellent example of what can happen when caring, competent physicians do not understand the patient's perspective, see Ann Fadiman's 1997 book, the spirit catches you and you fall down. Understanding the patient's point of view can help the health care provider deal with potential barriers to adherence and improve the patient-practitioner relationship. Another medical anthropologist and I were shadowing a pediatric attending on rounds. A young Mexican boy named Pablo Medina presented with cyclic vomiting. His mother reported that the episodes had occurred in conjunction with specific events. The first was when Pablo saw his dog run over in the street 
and he watched his father carry the dog's bloody body into the house. The second was when a friend of the family was shot while he was standing next to him. Just before his most recent admission, his father informed the family that he, Dad, was moving back to Mexico. On the day of admission, Pablo's teacher yelled at him for something that he did wrong. His mother was called to pick him up from school for vomiting. My colleague and I both immediately shared a single thought. Susto. This is a Hispanic folk disease in which a shock, such as the ones the boy experienced, causes the soul to leave the body. For more on susto, see chapter 12. No one mentioned susto, not the mother, nor the attending, nor the interpreter. My colleague and I wanted to, but as observers, we didn't feel it was our place to do so.